we need this problem solved because we need to get that capability into the hands of the warfighter because we've got this threat that's occurring at the moment. And so that's why the Defence Trailblazer is absolutely a critical part of that whole innovation ecosystem because our focus is getting that capabilities into the hands of the warfighter in as rapid a possible time as we can. That's the voice of Dr. Sanjay Mazumdar. He believes in bridging the gap between research and commercialization. In fact, as the newly appointed executive director of the Defence Trailblazer, he's made it his job. We really need to invest in the R&D associated to keep us ahead of our enemy actors because they're moving at a million miles an hour. They're not constrained by laws, policies, regulations. So we need to stay ahead of them in terms of the capability. Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and today we explore how industries, universities and defence are set to deliver sovereign capabilities for the nation's security and prosperity at speed and at scale. Join us as we look to Australia's ever-evolving defence horizons and learn what it takes to turn the research possibilities of today into the defence practices of tomorrow. This is the Discovery Pod. Hi Sanjay and welcome to the Discovery Pod. Great. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure and looking forward to our conversation today. I think we're all aware that we're living in a time of increased global security threat and tension. You know, we have the war in Ukraine, we have increased activity of rogue states, and we also have increased tension across the Pacific. And Sanji, you're a newly appointed executive director of the Defence Trailblazer. So I think you're in probably quite a good position to make some observations sure. on what actually is the level of global threat to our security and kind of what, what can we start doing about it? Sure. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You know, we are in a, a heightened uh, environment at the moment and there is this geopolitical landscape where which is posing threats to countries like Australia and, and other Western democracies as well. Some of those threats are evolving at quite a rapid pace. So technology is great for society, but it's also being used by threat actors to disrupt society as well. Mm. So a lot of the threats are things like cybersecurity type threats where people are using technology, the internet, etc., to sort of attack networks, gain information, put out misinformation, etc. Yeah. You know, we have threats associated with our commercial maritime channels. So, you know, a lot of a lot of our commercial trade in Australia is through shipping channels to the north of the country, and and those are constantly under threat as well. Yeah. So it'd be fair to say that warfare has become much more sophisticated and engaging and utilising all of the modern technologies and tools that are available to any nation state. Is that, yeah. is that a fair, <laughs> a fair oh, comment? That, that's absolutely true. Like, yeah. you know, people traditionally used to think of warfare being, you know, aircraft, ships, that's right. you, know, you know, vehicles on, on land. But the information domain has become a critical part of, mm. of warfare these days. So people using information to both attack countries and systems and networks and then also get information that they can use for other means as well, whether it be strategic things or whether it be commercial things, financial things. So yeah, inf the information domain is now a critical part of warfare these days. 
And then also when we think about defense, we're not just thinking about, you know, troops on the ground or ships in the sea. We're thinking about the kind of network of security we need around a nation to defend ourselves from this kind of multilateral warfare that's being waged out there in the globe. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I often talk, uh, use the, the analogy that, you know, the, the threats to countries these days are potentially some person sitting with a laptop in their lounge room in some foreign country yeah. and their ability to actually disrupt systems, you know, take down critical infrastructure like energy and, and electricity providers and things like that, mm. because everything's connected these days, you know, everything's networked together, connected via use of technology, and that provides benefits, but it also opens up vulnerabilities as well, and that people are looking to exploit those vulnerabilities. Mm. Yeah. So do you think the, the actors of warfare have also changed. So we're used to warfare being associated with nation states, but you've now mentioned individuals with laptops that mm. can, you know, wage their own war. Uh, uh, might not necessarily be against the state. It might also be against a particular company or a particular movement they don't agree with. Mm. So we're, we're seeing that the, the actors of warfare diversify massively mm. through access to technology as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, we often talk about the nation state actors, which are the, the, the more organized types of actors sponsored by a government. Mm. But then you've got individual actors as well, you know, bad actors. And these could be, as I, as I said before, someone sitting in their lounge room who wants to break into a network. Now, that could either be for, you know, commercial gain. It could just be, you know, because they can. It could be because they're actually looking to take down that network for some other purpose as well. So, yeah, it is a very complex landscape now. And the the use of technology means that it become more accessible to others as well uh, mm. to, to exploit. And, and so I often use a quote from Malcolm Turnbull, former prime minister, and he, he talked about the fact that, you know, the internet has been a great tool for communicating, collaborating, etc. But it's also a, a tool that's now being used to accelerate and turbocharge things like, you know, misinformation, disinformation, yeah. cyber threats, etc. Yeah. And I guess we really saw that come to the fore in the US election in 2016. Yeah. The president earlier this week instructed the intelligence community to conduct a full review of the pattern of malicious cyber activity related to our presidential election cycle. This was a multifaceted campaign, so the hacking was only one part of it, and it also entailed you know, classical propaganda, disinformation, fake news. Part of a massive campaign, the indictments say, were aimed at promoting Donald Trump at the expense of his opponents, both Republican and Democrat. I absolutely believe that Russian information warfare counts as an act of war. I mean, never had we seen kind of misinformation being used on that scale for such overt political outcomes. Yeah. It's quite it's quite an eye-opener, suddenly a, a relatively unregulated, naive kind of environment that used to be for good was suddenly hijacked, mm. I think, for for a singular purpose. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, misinformation is is a technique being used for ages. It used to be people <laughs> dropping pamphlets from aircraft. Right. Sort of, but nowadays what they're doing is they're, they're more sophisticated. So they understand, you know, my likes, your likes, you know, am I uh, you know, a Labour voter who has certain certain likes and dislikes? And if so, how do I reinforce my likes and dislikes and 
and and use that to create what they call echo chambers so that you get people who are very much hard left or hard right mm. and that debate in the middle then disappears as a result of that so yeah you know, in the u.s election for example you know it could have been they know that a certain individual was sort of pro-Trump, pro-guns, et cetera. And so they would constantly feed information to reinforce that view and also the counter to say, well, you know, Hillary was anti-guns and she's looking to take away guns. So it basically pushes you further left or pushes you further right. And that was used to great effect by nation-state actors in, in that election. Mm. Mm. So what what brought you into this area? I mean, it's a fascinating area. It's a very diverse and dynamic area in this yeah. space. It's an interaction between kind of security concerns, I guess, but also the technology piece. What, yeah. What, yeah, what's your background? Oh, look, so, I mean, if I go way back to when I first started. <laughs> oh, let's uh, go there. Yeah, yeah I'll go, okay. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting. I've, I've always been surrounded by technology. I've always been surrounded by people who have been doing R&D and technology. My, my father was professor of maths at the University of Adelaide, in fact. And, oh, right. um so a number of his PhD students, particularly the PhD students, you know, who used to come from India and were doing PhDs at the uni would often come to our house. So I was always surrounded by people doing that blue sky research and the pointy end of research. And so that, that initially sort of sparked my desire to actually get into into technology in the first instance. So I, I, I did electrical electronic engineering at, at the University of LA mm. and sort of was really interested in it. And I was interested in it because it gave me an opportunity to solve problems using things that I like, technology, maths, physics, etc. Mm. So I often used to use a phrase, it's like being a technical detective. You know, you're a detective solving a problem, but you're using technology to solve it. Mm. So that, that, that was what got me into AAA. And then I, as I was doing electrical electronic engineering during that time, I had a, a cadetship with DSTO, which is now called Defence Science Technology Group, DSTG. And so I started doing some internships and work experience out there, and I was working on radar systems and, and things like that. And that really showed me that you can apply these complex math theorems and stuff like that to, to real-world problems that are all about protecting the nation. Mm. So I started my career at DSTO many moons ago. And then I, I then got the hankering to actually want to build product because the thing about research often is you get to a point where it stops. You mm. don't, you know, it's that commercialization piece. Which That's is, right. Job here is done. You publish the paper on it and then the idea sits languishing in the lab or in an office somewhere then, you know. That's yeah. correct. So, yeah. so yeah, so I really want to get my get into an environment mm. where I was producing product which would get to, um, into the hands of people in the market. And so I moved to Motorola, the phone company, and they were setting up a, a global software center in, in, in Adelaide. And so I worked there for about eight years and, you know, we were at the bleeding edge of technology. In fact, my team uh, developed the world's first mobile wallet. So this is 1999. We did uh, a trial with Barclay Bank in the UK. So this is a, a mobile phone which allowed you to do banking transactions. Now, this is 99, right, no, uh, before iPhones and things like that. And mm. so it was like working at the real bleeding edge. And, and that's that also really inspired me to, to, to work at that bleeding edge, but to work at the bleeding edge where you can see commercial outcomes arriving from it. Mm. I sort of then moved back into defence because I, I sort of, defence was still my, the core thing that I was interested in. So I moved to BA Systems and I, the big global defence prime, and I was the head of engineering there for near on 10 years. And, you know, that got me to working on very big, complex defence systems that were all about creating capabilities to, to, to help 
you know, protect our warfighters, protect mm. the people in, in, in the Australian Defence Force. And so that gave me purpose, right? And I was working on something that I had, that had purpose and meaning. So that, that got me back into the defence fold and, and I've had a better feel for the challenges that we face as a nation that you don't see or hear about as a person in the public. Yeah. And so that sort of opened my eyes to why we as a community, as a society, et cetera, we really need to invest in the R&D associated to keep us ahead of our enemy actors, our bad actors, because they're moving at a million miles an hour. They're not constrained by laws, policies, regulations. So we need to stay ahead of them in terms of the capability, which means the research side is so important, but equally also the translation of that research into operations is really important. And trying to do that at scale and really quickly because the environment is changing so quickly is critically important. So that's what led me to Defence Trailblazer. The very nature of warfare has been constantly changing for as long as humans have been evolving. Cybersecurity, satellite defence systems and artificial intelligence are just a few examples of the threats we face today that are unique to the 21st century. When you consider this, you can only be glad that the person chosen to lead the Defence Trailblazer initiative is so accustomed to operating at the brink of technological possibility. Only recently conceived, the Trailblazer program is designed to see eligible universities undertake reforms including to intellectual property arrangements and provide clear promotional pathways for academic researchers engaging in commercialisation activities. In other words, Australian universities would be getting the funding they needed to drive research capable of improving our everyday lives. So when the Defence Trailblazer was announced in 2022, it lined up with Australia's need to remain informed and prepared for this new age of warfare. But what exactly does the program involve? So, probably people have heard in the media that Australia's great at research. Yeah, you know, in a lot of areas we, we world leading, world leading, world competitive at least. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But where we often fall down is how do you take that research from the lab? into the field? How do you right. commercialise that research and get it into the hands of people who can benefit from it? That translation and commercialisation piece. So, And we, we score a C minus there. We're a, a plus for research, but C minus for commercialisation. So the federal government decided, well, we need to do something about that. And so what that is, they created this Trailblazer University program, put quite a, a substantial amount of funding around it, about 300 and $60 million. And what they said is, well, we want to make sure that we build uh, local capability, sovereign capability in these critical areas. So they call them national manufacturing priorities. And these are areas like defense and space. They're areas like renewable energy. They're areas like critical mineral processing, etc. So they, they created this program. It's competitive bid program. They asked people to bid into it. And a number of consortium were bid into it and some were selected. Now, in the defence sector, there's really two universities that really bat above their weight when it comes to defence research mm. in, in Australia, and they're mm. University of Adelaide and the UNSW, University of New South Wales. And so the consortium that was pulled together by those two universities was selected to be the defence trailblazer. So trailblazers are all about 
trying to address that translation of research from the lab to the field. And there's really two ways you can do that. One is by actually doing it. So bringing together industry to work with researchers and universities to integrate their research into real products and solutions that they then deliver to defence, mm. right? So we've got a big research and development program, which is focused on that. So it's very different to your standard, what they call blue sky research, where people are coming up with a concept and sort of doing a bit of experimentation, etc. This is all about industry saying, I've got this solution, but what I want is a bit of research to enhance that solution to address a very specific defence need. So that, uh, that's critically important, isn't it? Because you're starting from the start with the industry player that's been working in the area for uh, decades in some cases yep. and has identified where they can't solve the problem. And then you bring in a partnership then with a research provider, in this case a university or universities, uh, to specifically solve that. But you have the context of support of the industry partner that's been toiling away and actually wants that solution. And that's arguably the way that applied research should be structured, yep. isn't it? Yeah, and the other part of that equation, so the third part of that equation is you've got defence itself involved saying, mm. well, the actual problem we the want... The government is, department. The government yeah, department yeah. Yeah, yeah. saying, here is the specific need that we have. This is high priority for us because of this strategic threat landscape we've got. We need this problem solved because we need to get that capability into the hands of the warfighter because we've got this threat that's occurring at the moment. And so that's why... The defence trailblazer at the moment is is absolutely a critical part of that whole innovation ecosystem because our focus is getting that capabilities into the hand so the warfighter in a as rapid a possible time as uh, as we can, hmm. and so that's critically important. The other parts of the defence trailblazer is also really important is what we, what we call workforce innovation culture stream. So. Workforce is, is for all sectors, is critically important. You know, yeah. everyone is short of people to do the work and defence is no orphan there, but there are some very specific needs in defence that, that they have. And so what we're trying to do is elicit what those needs are and then work with the tertiary education sector and also the vocational yeah. education yeah. sector, so yeah. TAFEs and so forth, yeah. really to try and tailor programs to specifically meet those defence needs. So I often use the phrase defensify, you know, programs that might exist. And that's helping to generate a, a supply chain, you know, to use a sort of a defence commercial term, a, a, a supply chain of talent yeah. that can meet the needs, both today's needs, but also tomorrow's needs. Yeah. So if you think about recent announcements of you know, nuclear-powered submarines, that's a 40 to 50-year program. And there are people who aren't even born today who they'll, who can work in that environment. Yep. But how do we make sure that the education system is tailored to appropriately educate and train those folks to meet that need? And that's part of you know what the Trailblazer is looking to do in the near term. The Defence Trailblazer programme, as Sanjay describes, goes far beyond simply fortifying the tools and technology needed on the front lines of defence. It's about recognising that our workforce, training programmes, supply chains and talent pools need fortifying too. The recent AUKUS deal demonstrates this perfectly. 
Now, the leaders of the US, Britain and Australia meeting in California have given details of a defence pact that will provide Australia with nuclear-powered attack submarines. The agreement comes in response to China's growing military strength and territorial claims. This is the first time in 65 years and only the second time in history that the United States has shared its nuclear propulsion technology and we thank you for it. Because when they first announced it, they laid out four different areas where they wanted to cooperate in cyber, in AI, in quantum and in UUVs, unmanned underwater vehicles. The training and skills academy at Barrow in Furness will be replicated at Osborne, but it won't stop there. The Premier says we have a huge task ahead matching BAE's building capabilities. South Australia has a central role to play in contributing to our national effort to maintain the security of our region by providing the Commonwealth with the highest end equipment that could possibly be procured anywhere in the world in the service of our Navy. So if the goal is to strengthen Australia's defence capabilities and all the systems that support it, where do we even begin to focus our attention? How do you even start to write a priority list for realities that will lie 40, 50 or even 60 years into our future? So with all mm. this, everyone focuses on the nuclear-powered submarine. Mm. Um, but there's what's called Pillar 2 in AUKUS, and these are advanced technologies. And some of those advanced technologies are areas where Australia has real strength in its, its R&D. So, for example, there's one of the advanced technologies around quantum computing, quantum technologies. So that's, you know, how do we use quantum materials, et cetera, to be able to produce the computers of tomorrow that can do processing really quickly and at large scale right australia is it bats above its weight in that mm. in that area and uh, in particular the two universities that are involved with the trailblazer bat above their weight so university of new south wales unsw they do a lot of work around quantum quantum computing and there's a couple of spin-out companies so there's an opportunity that we can prove technologies on the local scale through working with australian defense but then scale them globally by by collaborating with the US and the UK under the AUKUS umbrella mm. because the market is not sufficiently large in Australia for companies that are focused on those technologies to really to really be sustainable and to grow so AUKUS opens up those opportunities as well, as do other strategic arrangements like the Quad, which involves India and South Korea and, and Japan. So Pillar 2 in AUKUS really covers some of those areas. So things like quantum, things like AI, that's another area where Australia does really well. And University of Adelaide, mm. you know, ranked two or three in computer vision, mm. which is a form of machine learning, a form of AI. Yeah. So once again, an area where where we in Australia can really prove capabilities, do some leading edge stuff, and then use these arrangements to globalise you know, solutions to, to a global market. So we in the Trailblazer, we've actually focused our R&D on some of these areas. So we're focusing on AI, artificial intelligence. We're focusing on quantum computing and, and quantum sensing. We're focusing on defense space. So space satellite technologies are critical to defense as well. So the ability to look down onto the earth and understand, you know, what's that buildup of, of facilities over there is that something that might be used for someone building a base, new base, etc. So using satellite imagery to detect that. So that's another part of what we're doing, mm. defence space yeah, technology. Yeah. Yeah. 
we're focusing on an area called hypersonic, so high-speed weaponry. So that's an interesting area because one of the threats to countries like Australia is going to be high-speed, long-range weapons. And so our ability to counter that, or at least have the threat to counter it, so we have the weaponry there, we might choose or choose not to use it, but at least we have it. Mm. But also the alternate side is our ability to counter it through what we call countermeasures. So how can we knock down a, a hypersonic weapon? That's an important area as well. And so there's a lot of research going on in terms of that countermeasure side. And once again, University of Adelaide um, leads the way in, in some of that area as well. Mm. And then the probably the last area I'll just touch upon is where we started right at the beginning is around cyber and information warfare. So everyone understands the cyber piece, you know, the ability to protect your networks, your data, your systems, really important. And, you know, people are often trying to hack into those. The information piece is also the critical bit we spoke about before, because a lot of that warfare is being fought using information to understand your opponents, information to your misinformation to misdirect your opponents, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's an important part of what we're doing as well. Um, which one for you is the most important? <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> I, I, I like, to pick your favourite child. Yeah, it's right? like just uh, your favourite yeah. child. <laughs> I think the biggest game changer is going to be AI yeah. in the near term, yeah. right? And we're already starting to see that across a whole bunch of different sectors with chat GPT. So in the near term, AI is going to be the big game changer. I think longer term, it's going to be the quantum computing area because if we can get quantum computers you know, at scale, so they're like our normal laptops of today, then things like being able to process large amounts of data like that becomes... Um, becomes and that's the promise, right, of that's quantum correct. computing, isn't that's, it? Yeah. That's correct, yeah. And so our ability to do processing at scale in real time, large amounts of data will be opened up through the use of quantum computing. But there's there's a bit of work to go there. And, and through the Trailblazer, we've, we're, we're going to be standing up some projects to look at how do you do quantum computers on silicon, on, on normal chips, mm. that can help try and progress us further down that path. And we can see from each of those areas of development and the research frontiers that each of those clearly have an application towards the defense uh, sector, yeah. but also more broadly in the technology sector. Yeah. You can... Uh, imagine for one defense application, there would be a hundred technical applications. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we often talk about dual use in defense. So, how mm. do you solve both a defense problem but another sector's problem? So, if you think about the space technology one, we're looking down onto the earth trying to work out, you know, is that troop movement or some new defense facility? Equally, agriculture, you want to look down from, from space to work out, well, is, is there basically you know, water drying up in this particular area because we get dead fish in the Murray-Darling Basin because of the environmental conditions? So using satellite imagery helps you understand your know, water flows and, and catchment areas in the Murray-Darling Basin. Mm-hmm. So there's an example where this technology could be used across different, different applications. Yeah. And if this decade 
has been the, the kind of information warfare decade. Where do you think the next horizon for warfare is actually going to take place? Yeah, so it's uh, a really good question. I, I think trying to combine that that AI and the information piece, mm. I think that's where we start to think about, you know, we're, we're talking about autonomy. So use of AI, use of drones, you know, use of information to inform autonomy so that the battle space becomes one which is not really involving humans. Now that sounds all great, but then then the question is, well, how do you bring in you know things like ethics into that discussion, etc.? So I think autonomy, it, we're seeing it now already. You know that's going to evolve, 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 and then you know whether battles start happening in the metaverse, you know, in, in truly <laughs> the virtual environment, yeah. etc. And how does that then translate to the physical world? Mm. I, I don't know, but you know, you know it's potentially something that happens often often think good well, subject for films right yeah. well i think and i think sometimes films actually are the precursor to what that's happens right. in reality Ultimates life or whatever that's, yeah that's yeah. right so yeah i think people in hollywood often have a better sort of long-term visionary thing here so yeah <laughs> You know, they're not working hard on research. They're, yeah. they're thinking of big ideas. Thinking. Anyway, look, that future warfare horizon is, is really important and we need to watch where that, that's coming from, mm. I guess. Be vigilant. But let me ask you another question, Sanji. This will be kind of the, the last big question, I think, of, of the interview. And let's say you've successfully delivered Trailblazer. You know, it's 10 years down, down the track and you're looking back. How will you have made history? Yeah, that's a great question. Look, I think for me, you know, the key remit for us as Trailblazer is really to try and build local companies that are critically important in solving defence's problems and protecting, you know, Australians and uh, our society. Now, if we can, through the Trailblazer, create three, four, five of these companies that are global players who are constantly evolving and developing new technologies that are constantly making us safer and our our partners safer, then I think tick job done. And and I think we would have made history by that. So for me, our, our success is going to be measured through the part through our partners and through those companies that we might create through through the ideas that get generated through the research that we're we're funding and supporting. So then it's really to have imagined and delivered that commercialization landscape that Australia is so lacking in. Absolutely. Sanjay, thanks very much for the interview today. Thanks, Andy. It's a pleasure. As we move into a new era of defence and security challenges, programmes like Defence Trailblazer are driving government, industry and academia to fire on all cylinders in readiness to address what is to come. And with the likelihood that the technology and innovations developed by this programme will flow from defence to our wider society, it hardly needs to be said that you should watch this space. Thank you, Sanjay, for lifting our gaze to the horizon and telling us all about the Defence Trailblazer programme. And thanks as well to you for listening. This has been the final episode of the Discovery Pod Season 3. Thank you for tuning in, hitting play, following and learning about some of the fascinating research currently coming out of South Australia. I highly recommend you take a look at some of our past episodes to see if there's anything you've missed. We've covered music for oysters, carbon credits, hemp houses, green hydrogen, mental health and much, much more. There's something for every interest. So if you find something you love, leave us a review, rate us five stars 
and share that episode with your friends and family. In the meantime, our inbox is always open. If you have any ideas on what might go into season four, you can get in touch with us at podcast.adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you've been listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. So, what do you want to know next?